You're listening to the Grace Reformed Church podcast. We continue on this week through our series in Revelation with the letters to the seven churches. This week is the letter to the church at Thyatira. As Gary was reading it, I mean, that's a, that's a heavy passage, didn't you think? That's some heavy words in there, and you kind of, um, as a pastor, you, you kind of think like, well, maybe I should preach on other stuff, because this is hard stuff to look at, but all of Scripture is God-breathed, and we need to look at these bits, even the bits that are a bit uncomfortable, because it's still God's Word, it's still truth, and God, through His Spirit and His Word, can speak to us today through it. So, um, context there on the screen, there's the seven churches, and uh, to remind you, that's what we call Turkey today, Asia Minor, back in Bible days, that's Greece, there's uh, Egypt, and Israel would be behind that picture, and there's a picture of some of the ruins you could see if you go to the city of Theatira um, today. Theatira was the least significant of those seven cities. It's a travel through town, you could say, back in the day. You wouldn't, necess- you wouldn't go there just to go there. There's no sightseeing. There's no uh, holiday uh, hotels along the river. It's more of a place where they produced things, pottery and some metal works, and, and you know, there are lots of furnaces there. Um, as people had industry and commerce, and folks would travel to there to buy in bulk things they needed um, for their shops elsewhere. So you might have a, you know, a shop in another town, you go there to buy stuff, or if you live there, many people would travel to other towns to sell the wares that was produced in the furnaces of Theatira. When I was reading up about this travel through town, I could not help but remember my first congregation, my wife would remember it well, um, Sunny's Hof was where, if some of you were ever in, uh, you know, in northwest province of Africa, it's a, they call it a silly old town. It was so small that you, you, when you drove through there, there was one stop street in the main road, one stop street. And the main road had businesses on the right-hand side, and on the left-hand side was a train track and grain silos. And um, you, you nearly didn't want to stop at that stop street because it, it broke your momentum. But you could just travel and, and not even notice this small town. But Scripture always says, to us, do not despise small things, Zechariah 4.10. And I can testify today about how God in Scripture s- speaks to and sees the big city and the churches in the big places, but also the small towns and the churches in the smaller places. His eyes are everywhere and He walks with His people no matter the setting they find themselves in. An interesting connection with this city, Theatira, is um, found in the book of Acts. Because in the book of Acts, we read about Paul, who traveled to um, preach the gospel in Philippi. And he gets to Philippi, and because there's no synagogue in that city, he makes his way on the Sabbath day to the river. Because he knew that if there's Jews, like himself, in that city, the the mannerism, the culture said that if there's no synagogue, then on the Sabbath day, the people would go down to the river and then find other people like themselves who were believers in, in God of the Bible, and then they could gather for prayer, fellowship, and worship. So Paul went down to the river, and there in, um, we read about that in Acts 16, that he found believers there, and amongst them was a woman who sold purple cloth. Can you remember her name? Anyone? Lydia, yes. And see what Acts 16 
14 tells us, one of those listening to Paul was a woman from the city of Theatira. That's the, the one in Revelation we're dealing with today. And her name was Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. So she uh, was from that town, but she had set up a shop in Philippi, and so she would travel between her hometown and where she had this commerce, and there she was selling her wares. And in her case, she was a maker of purple cloth, something that was, was extremely rare and therefore expensive, and there was uh, some herbs that they could use to make purple cloth, but if you wanted the good quality purple, they, they got that um, ink from a shellfish. Very rare, very hard to find, but the makers in Theatira was known for making these great wares like Lydia did. But in this passage of Acts 16, we read that she was a worshiper of God and that God opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. She became a believer, a follower of Jesus. In Acts 16, it says that they were baptized, her and her family, right there. And she would then travel back to her hometown, Theatira, and maybe she was part of the group that started the church plant in Theatira. And maybe she was in that church when the letter came that John had written, that Jesus said, John, write these letters, you know, Acts 1, 2, 3, John, write what I'm telling you and send it to the churches. So this letter comes to this church, and someone says that Jesus had appeared to John and told him to write a letter to us. So imagine that, getting a letter from Jesus himself addressed to your church. And maybe she sat in the congregation that day as this letter was read. What would have been going through her mind? How, how would she have been impacted, her and the others, that was listening to Jesus' word to the church in Theatira? As they read this letter, the first thing that was highlighted, Gary had read that passage, was the glory and authority of, of Christ. Because he said he had blazing eyes on fire. And his feet were like bronze, glowing as if in an oven. So it is a glorious image that is described for us. I want to show you in a moment a picture. It was, um, it's called the Buddy Jesus. Not sure if you've seen this before. It's not at all how a revelation describes Jesus, but compare the two. There's Buddy Jesus. And next to me is an illustration of Jesus as depicted in Revelations. Flaming eyes, rider on the white horse going to war. See, Buddy Jesus was part of a film called Dogma, where it, it illustrated in a story way that the Catholic Church was revamping themselves and Jesus hung, hang on the cross, you know, because that's very much a Catholic thing, was the crosses with Jesus hanging on it. And in this movie, they say, well, that's a kind of depressing. We need to get a new image and make Jesus and the church more palatable for people so that more people could relate and, and come to the church. And so they created this new image. They took down the cross and Jesus on the cross, and they, got, they made buddy Jesus, who's pointing, winking, thumbs up, saying, you're okay, I'm okay. Hey, chum. Pally Wally friend, that's this image they created. And in a way, you know, it's, it's kind of taken off because since this movie, it's been made into an action figure. Hmm. You can even get a bobble head of Buddy Jesus. You know, your car and the, the head that kind of bounces around. And it, it's funny, but in a way, it's also offensive. 
They're making something that's so glorious, so cheap. Because Jesus in Revelation is not described as the buddy Jesus. And there's a tension there. I think the, the buddy Jesus goes too far. But Scripture does speak of a God who has a friendship with us, who has a relationship, and there is love. But there's always reverence because that same God who loves and has relationship is glorious and has authority and is above all so much higher than we are. We are created beings. He is the creator. You see that image of Jesus? I mean, it's just an illustration. But John says when he saw Jesus, it was so overwhelming that he fainted. He fell as if dead. I had a similar image on, back in South Africa. I did, did a, you know, I love music. I made a, an Afrikaans CD on the book of Revelation, Openbar. And on this, it's too small for you to see, but it's very similar to that image there. That was my cover. Byron, my producer friend, you'd be interested to know that Christian bookshops didn't want to sell my CD because the cover, they felt it's like it's a bit off-putting. It's too in your face. So one shop actually kept it on the counter, and you could ask for it, and they'd take it out, but they wouldn't display it because Jesus, like that, is not palatable. So I actually had to change the cover from an image of him on the white horse to purple with just words, and then they sold it. Interesting. But it, it kind of gives this reflection how the world can't deal with a glorious holy God, but even as Christians sometimes, we're uncomfortable with it too. It's, it's overpowering, and John felt that that's why he fainted. We don't see the image, but we read about what he saw then. There was even a missionary at the time who phoned me, and I thought he phoned me to network, and I could maybe be of service to him, go there and teach and sing on Revelation. And he ridiculed me about the, the image of Jesus. That's not Jesus. I was thinking, Revelations 19, exactly depicted. But not a lot of Christians or missionaries was reading Revelation and Jesus described there. But can you feel the tension between those two things? The God who loves, who is a friend, but the same God who is glorious and holy and that we should, of course, revere. There's a tension there. I've been listening to, a, I've got a playlist, and um, on this playlist is a lovely song. It's a new rendition of an old hymn, uh, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Remember that song? What a friend we have in Jesus. And they've got this new chorus that they've worked into. We might sing it in church. Beautiful. But the chorus has the words, Precious Jesus, Lord and Friend. Lord and friend. And as I was thinking of those two words, I was feeling the tension and, and pondering this fact of his friend, but he has to be Lord as well. He can't just be the friend, buddy, Jesus kind of image, because that's where the world gets it wrong. Jesus did call his disciples friends. John 15, 15 says, I don't call you servants. I call you friends, he said. But they always revered him. Because such glory, the attention of it, Lord, you are so glorious. You are God. And one day every eye will see you and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. If such a warrior king 
calls me friend, calls you his friend. How amazing is that? How much more is my appreciation and my thankfulness for him? Because I realize that he's so high, and if such a high God would call me son and you daughter, then I'm thankful, I'm humbled, I'm, I'm in awe of that. But if it's only like in those movies where Jesus is just a, a thing, action figure, a boppy head on a car somewhere, a meme, then it's easy to use his name blasphemously and swear in every second movie or TV show you watch on screen. It's easy to do that because he's buddy Jesus. It's easy to not revere him because he's just the humble child born in, in a, there in uh, Bethlehem. We have to have the, the knowledge of who he truly is to appreciate the fact that he calls us friend, son, and daughter. Reverence is always part of that image. If I don't revere God, if I don't revere Jesus, then I don't know who he really is. This Jesus spoke to this church in two parts, basically. There's a compliment, an encouragement, and then there's a warning. And just in big strokes, it's too much to deal with in one sermon, but in big strokes, he says, I know you, your deeds. And, and it's, deeds speaks of something that people do. It's not just their membership or their opinion on something. It's the, what he knows they're doing. He says, I know your love. And the word there in the Greek is agape. It means charity. So even love there, I know the love you show through charity. It's a doing word. And faith, you could put in the root of that word means faith or faithfulness. Again, it's something that I keep on doing. And your service and your perseverance and that you are now doing more than you did at first. See how important the Bible highlights the practical side of our faith? That I can have the knowledge of Him and therefore I have faith knowing Him, but the Bible speaks of the doing things for God, the way I live my life. The Bible says, by your works you are known. The fruit that you, you bear shows what's on the insides of you, that which we do. Jesus, in the first letter to the Ephesian church, He said to this church who had lost their first love, repent and do again the deeds you did at first. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all one day appear before the judgment seat of Christ for our deeds. This church is known for good deeds. But still, there's this word in there after Jesus says, I, 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 I see what you do and I commend you for it. But then he says, nevertheless. Still, there's something we need to address. And Scripture says he, he rebukes those he loves. And the problem is, you know, of this church is put into one word. It's a name, Jezebel. And Jezebel is a, a name that has a lot of meaning. Christians do not name their daughter Jezebel. I don't know if you've know, noticed that. I have not met one Christian who's named their daughter Jezebel because it's not a compliment because of the associated history. Um, in a way, it, like, if you think, uh, things, a lot of people call their, like if I, I think of the word Nero, you know there was uh, uh, 
the Roman Emperor Nero. But if you tell me Nero will greet you at the door, I'm thinking of a Doberman or Rottweiler. I don't think of Caesar. See, we have these associations with names, especially names. Some people might say as a derogatory of, she's a real Jezebel, meaning someone who has a bad influence and is uh, a lost banda, what's the adulterous person, saying that. So it's not a good word. And the reason being is that in the Old Testament, we read about her, that there was King Ahab, and he was the most evil, wicked king in Israel's history, and it's all because he married this woman, Jezebel, from, from uh, 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 I think it was from the Persians, she came, and she brought with her hundreds of Baal prophets, and it's a fertility, a fertility cult. So there was a lot of uh, prostitution and immoral sex involved, and even child sacrifice, and they erected these altars all over Israel. And this woman, Jezebel, defiled the land. She defiled the office of king in Israel. The king was supposed to be like a representation of God, our king, to the people. But she defiled it. And Jezebel, in her uh, original tongue, and I think it's Persian or Babylonian, but the her name means uh, um, primrose in her tongue. But Jezebel in the Hebrew sounds like the word rubbish. And can you imagine the Jews seeing this woman bring all this Baal worship to the nation and putting up all these altars? And maybe some of them are snickering and saying, yeah, Queen Rubbish is at it again. So you see the association? It's a very negative association. But now this church, Jesus is saying that um, this, there's a person, and in this case it's a woman, Previous churches, there were groups, Nicolaitans, and remember there were groups infiltrating the church. This church has got one person that is bringing so-called deeper teaching into the church. And Jesus said, those so-called deeper teaching is from Satan. That's his words there. And he, the, he calls her an adulterer. Adultery meaning if, you, if someone who's married sleeps with someone who's not his wife. That's what it means. And saying, this is what she does. And, and she has relationships with a lot of men. That's implied in the, the letter. And she, in a way, is making it fine because it's a spiritual thing. You know, and what you do in the f- flesh doesn't affect the, the, the spirit. And, and it's part of the culture. And it's part of the temple worship. So it's fine, fine, fine. And it's a deeper teaching than that which uh, they had heard before. To be people that honor God in the way they live and the way they honor their marriages. And we can see that when Jesus speaks to this church and say, you, you, church, as a group, you're doing amazing things, but there's this growing rubbish in your midst of sexual sin being justified. Now, you go home and you think about that, how our world is doing that. There's a growing number of churches that says all this stuff that's outside of a man and woman marriage is okay. It's being preached from pulpits and they're putting colorful banners on the walls to say it's okay. You know, God says man and woman, one man, one woman for life. That's where, where sexuality is to be experienced and it's a God ordained, beautiful thing. 
But then the church is saying, well, other stuff is fine, from pulpits as well. New, we've, you know, it's, we have new teaching. We have new knowledge about these matters. And Jesus is saying, that's not okay. And he actually condemns that in the church. And he says, on those who practice those things, I'll bring punishment. But he also says that I've given her time to repent. So God's grace is always there if we would but turn to Him. And even those who, who follow her teaching, He's saying, I give you time to repent, to turn away from what they know is not right. But that's the problem with sin. If we want it, if we really want it, and we're a Christian, how do I get it and I'm a Christian, and there's the Bible and the Holy Spirit convicting me not to do it, I have to justify it. And I find teachers who tell me what I want to hear, like Jezebel did in that church. And that's why I think when, Gary, you were reading that passage, it's got heavy stuff in there. That's why we need to go through all of Scriptures, because it reminds us that it's not just about what we want or what tickles our ears, but all of Scripture reveals to us God's ways and how we should live. The church must be in the world, but the world must not be in the church. It's like a lifeboat on the ocean. The lifeboat in the ocean can save lives, but the ocean in the lifeboats will sink the boat. So we should be in the world. We should be salt and light, but the world should not rubbish us. And I think it's a constant, constant thing to always lean into God, always fighting against sin. In my garden, I, you know, I, I, uh, as we get older, me and my wife, we are getting into gardening more and more and more. I used to, as a child, when my dad said garden time, I hated it. I thought, who wants to do gardening when you can be playing soccer or games? Or Who wants to do gardening? It's boring, but now we love it. The thing, though, is that those darn weeds, they just keep coming back. I don't invite them. I didn't plant them. I don't feed them good stuff to make them grow. I feed the grass good stuff. But the, those weeds and thorns, they just pop out every time. And, and you know what? I could one day say to my wife, I'm not pulling out weeds anymore. I'm not putting that weed and feed stuff on the lawn anymore. And she'll ask me, why not? Because I, I did it last week. I'm, I did it. I'm not doing it anymore because I've done it. No, you have to constantly do it. Keep your hand on it. And that's the same with the fight for sin in our lives. It'll always push back on you. But you always have to root it out. You always have to fight against it. And when will we be free of it? When will there be no more weeds? One day. New heaven, new earth. When there's no more sin, sickness, disease, or rubbish that'll affect and our insights, we'll be free of it. But until then, <laughs> this one pastor, he had a young man come to him saying, Pastor, I'm struggling with temptation. Uh, what temptation, young man? Young man said, well, lust. So I love woman and so lust. And the, the pastor counseled him, said, well, you've got to fight you know, the whole thing. Just eyes on the Lord, live holy, um, fight against it. And he said, Pastor, what about you? The pastor, well, yeah, yeah no, I've, I've got my fair share of it. And says, Pastor, wh when, when will it be over? And he said, Sonny, 
I don't trust myself. I feel I've been dead for about three days that those temptations will stop. Even though they're there, we always fight against whatever it is. And I'm, in this passage, that's the sin that's highlighted for this church. Jesus then says to the church, to the rest of you that aren't involved in that sin, just hold on until I come. And that's such an encouragement that just hold on to me until I come. We've been made aware more and more in our day of how much of the world is suffering, how much of the church in other parts of the world is suffering. Persecution uh, in China is, is flaring up, and in other parts, Pakistan, if you're a Christian, India in some parts, it's, your, your life is at stake just for saying you're a Christian. And then we're also aware, besides the persecution, we're aware that in other parts of the world, especially the Western world, how the church is losing ground. It's imploding. It's uh, uh, promoting sin and all things that are not godly and biblical. But when I read Revelations, I realize it is not a new phenomenon. Persecution was rife then. Sin and darkness trying to rubbish the church happened back then. It's always been there. Why? Because the world is in the grip of sin, and there is evil at work even to this day. But Jesus says, in spite of persecution, in spite of sin and rubbish wanting to push in on you, you just hold on to me. You fix your eyes on me. Hold on until I come. We sang that first song, uh, the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, that line that's in there saying, your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. It's the church echoing the words through the ages, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. And when he comes, we, we want to hear the words then, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because any of us was perfect. Man, they wouldn't need Jesus if we had it all together. But we Trust Him to work in us and keep us faithful to the end. Lord, make me more like Jesus. Even though it's a struggle at sometimes, make me more like Jesus. I'm nearly done. We, um, over the weeks, I've posted every Sunday a link to Dr. Joseph Stowell. And then about 20 minutes or so, he, he visits that city depicted in Revelation. And he walks in the grounds there, and he tells interesting things about that city. So again, you can go and look at that. It's an automated 11 o'clock. The link will pop up on the Grace Church Facebook page. And in this episode, he does two churches. So there's about 13 minutes of the first one um, and so forth. But I love what he said, and I want to highlight one of the things he said about the reward. Because at the end, Jesus says to those who are victorious, I'll give you these things, authority over nations. You will rule. You'll um, have a morning star given to you. And uh, uh, he says, you, well, authority and ruling and reigning and the gift of the morning star, which points us to Christ. He is the morning star. But when I think of that, and this is what he said as well, there's eternal reward held to us to remind us of why we shouldn't cling to the earthly rewards. The earth or the world 
can many times tempt us by saying, you know, if you do these things, you'll be happy. There's, there's, there's better, easier ways to be satisfied and enjoy life. But Jesus says, don't follow those lies. You keep your eyes fixed on me and hold on to the reward that is eternal. And Dr. Stowell speaks, uh, illustrated through a business term called a lost leader, where in a business they would offer a product at a greatly discounted price, then the business would even lose money on that one product. But called a loss leader because they want to get you into the door to buy that really cheap product. But while you're there, they're going to have signs and people trying to sell you other products that makes up for the lost up front. That's what's called a loss leader. So a bit of business training today in church. He makes the point that Jesus is saying to the church, even though up front there is temptation to fight. There is persecution. There's pressure. That little bit of loss is nothing compared to the great reward we will one day receive when we get to heaven. Keep your mind on those things. When this world presses in on you, you just think, this is not everything. This is not all there is. This is a drop. Eternity is the ocean. We live for that. Lord, may your kingdom come. And with the church in Revelation, we cried, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. One day he will come, and one day every eye shall see him, and everyone will acknowledge him as Lord. And may we all acknowledge him as our Savior as well. Amen. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for your word. As we go into a new week, may your word be what stays in our hearts. And can you, by your Holy Spirit, remind us of this passage. And may it be for all of us an encouragement to live right before you. And if we've messed up, Lord, if we've done wrong, thank you that in that passage you have shown us that you give grace and time to repent, to make right, to fight against the sins and temptations of this world. Help us do that. Help us to live for your glory. And may we be a people and a church that do deeds that honor you. So help us, God. We pray in Jesus' name. And we can all agree and say, Amen. Music team.